You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let me invite you to open your Bible to the book of Jonah. If you're just jumping in, we are in part four of a seven-part series in the book of Jonah. Some of you are wondering, how are you going to transition out of Christmas carols into Jonah? It's really not all that hard, folks. If you were here last week, Jonah was sent a savior in the form of a great fish. And that fish finally got him headed in the direction that God wanted him to go all along. And so this morning, we are going to talk about an incredibly important principle. It runs from cover to cover in our Bibles. This one principle is the one thing that proves whether or not you are a genuine believer, that you've actually experienced the grace of God and been born again. This one principle is the one thing that would ensure that we will fulfill the great commission throughout the earth. This one principle is the thing that would have prevented the fall of mankind. It would have prevented every terrorist act. It would have prevented every disease if this one principle would have been applied. This one principle is the thing that every parent expects from every child every time the parent tells the child something to do. And yet this one principle is the thing that most of us assume, ignore, and excuse in our lives. Do you know what we're talking about? Obedience. What is obedience? I want you to see it here from Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 verse 1. Then, stop right there. You say, Trent, if you stop at every word, we're not getting out of here. Any- well, i got to stop at this one because that word then encapsulates everything that was in the previous two chapters. Do you know the story? God came to Noah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh said, not going to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. And so he caught a boat. He found himself on the way to Tarshish in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. God sends a great storm. The sailors on the ship throw Jonah overboard. God sends a great fish, swallows Jonah in the middle of the fish. After three days, Jonah finally realizes salvation belongs to the Lord, and that fish barfs him back up in the direction that God wants him to go. That's what's encapsulated in that little four-letter word, then. Now, after all of that, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Is there an echo in here? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, notice, a second time, because that's what God wanted him to do. The plan, the mission hadn't changed. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, The message that I will tell you. Verse 3. So Jonah finally arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. That's as far as we're going. Two and a half verses this morning. Because we don't want to rush past the foundational principle of the Christian life is obedience. Now some of us would look at our lives and realize we have a conditional obedience. 
if we understand how this makes sense, if we can kind of see light at the end of the tunnel and what the outcome's going to be, and if it won't risk too much danger, then we obey God. That's a conditional obedience. What we're talking about is an unconditional obedience. Do you know what conditional obedience is? Disobedience. Some of us have a cafeteria-style obedience. Anybody like to go to a cafeteria? Anybody like to go to the buffet? Where you have every option in the world. You don't have to eat the stuff that you don't like. All the stuff that's green. You don't want to eat that stuff. So you make your way over to the stuff that appeals to your appetite. And some of us have that type of relationship with God. We'll obey Him in the things that we like. We'll obey Him in the things that we feel like are going to be profitable to us. But if God tells us to do something we don't like, we say no to that. Do you know what cafeteria obedience is? Disobedience. Some of us have an assumed obedience. And this is so subtle. It is so dangerous. Because we dress ourselves up, we come to church, we bring our Bible, we give an offering because we don't get divorced, we've never committed murder, and we're pretty good when we compare ourselves to everybody else. We just kind of assume we're obeying God. And yet, do you know what assumed obedience is? What is the word? That's disobedience. So what is obedience? Let's give it a definition. Now, when when all these children started showing up in our home, we realized that we were, as parents, responsible to teach them to obey. So I'll never forget, with every one of my children, the day or two after they were born, you stick them in the car, you bring them home from the hospital, you bring them into the home, and I just said, Andrea, I need a few minutes with the child. And so she gave me the child, and I set the child there on the couch. They're all bundled up, you know, and, and you prop them up with pillows so they don't fall over, you know. And, and their eyes, you know, they're going like this at this point because they haven't quite got control over that even. I said, look at me. <laughs> I want you to learn something. It's a Bible verse. Ephesians 6.1. I want you to quote it. It goes like this, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now try that. It's okay, we'll work on it tomorrow. And so every day we started working on this verse because it is the foundational principle not only of the Christian life but of life itself. We must learn to obey. And so it was so important in our family, we have a little definition. Would you like to know what our definition is? Would you like to know what our definition is? You guys are asleep this morning. I'm telling the 11 o'clock service on you guys, okay? You better bring it next, uh, next week when you come in at 9 o'clock. Get this thing going. So in order for you to know the definition, I guess I should bring up one of my children. There's one. So come up right now. This is Leah, and uh, Leah's going to see if she knows anything about this particular definition. Do you know the definition of obedience? What is it? Obedience is doing what you're told to do when you're told to do it with the right heart attitude. Excellent. Now, that was great. Don't applaud. She did not do anything but recite things, okay? When she obeys, then we applaud, okay? So that was such an important principle in our family, we didn't want them to forget it. So we actually had some motions that go along with it. 
Would you like to see the motions? Yes. All right, here's the motions. All right, obedience is doing what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, with the right heart attitude. Mm-hmm. All right, now, now there we go. So everybody stand up. All right, we're going to learn. Come on. All right. We are going to learn the definition of obedience today, all right? Obedience is doing what I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it, with the right heart attitude. Mm-hmm. All right? Let's try that again. Are you ready to go? Here we go. All, everybody together. It's doing what I'm told to do, when I'm told to do it, with the right heart attitude. Mm-hmm. Got it. You can have a seat. Thank you very much. You can go have a seat. Very obedient. Very nice. Do you see how she came when I asked her to come and she left when I asked her to leave? That's obedience there. No, no. Oh, now you want to applaud. Okay. Clean your room this afternoon. And then we'll applaud. All right? Now, listen, that's a lot of fun there. But you know what? Some of us are experiencing the tragic consequences of not obeying God. And we're going to learn six things this morning about the importance of obedience. Here's the first. Obedience begins with active listening. Obedience begins with active listening. We see it there in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Are you putting yourself in a position where you regularly hear and listen to the word of God? How do you listen to God? Do you spend more time listening to yourself? Do you spend more time listening to music? Do you spend more time listening to Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel or Jimmy whoever, other than listening to God? So many other voices compete for our ear. Active listening turns its ear toward the word of the Lord. Now, let me just say this. There has been more damage caused in the church following this phrase than any other phrase. God told me, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Unless you're about to quote a Bible verse, I'm a little suspicious, okay? Everything that God wants you to obey is found in the written word of God. And the further you move away from the written word of God, the less confidence you can have that you have heard from God. So many times what we say is the voice of God is actually the voice of our own selfishness. It's our own ideas and dreams and visions, and we want this, and we want to marry this girl, or we want this particular job. And so we move without familiarizing ourselves with the principles contained in this book. God has revealed himself. The Bible is the self-disclosure of the will and the ways and the character of God. And what God wants you to do in obedience to him is more about the kind of person you are than specific things that are the inclinations of our heart. Now, God does speak specifically. God does prompt us. God illuminates his word as we read it. And that's why it's important that we lean our ear into the word of God. 
and put ourselves in a position regularly to hear. And I want to encourage you, when you come to Harvest Bible Chapel, we're not real subtle about that, okay? It's Harvest Bible Chapel. We're going to open God's Word. And so when you come, come prepared to hear a word from God. Did you come this morning expecting God to speak to you? Prepare your heart. If you came expectant, you probably brought a pen with you and a journal. Because when God speaks to me this morning, I do not want to miss it. I do not want to forget it. It's actively listening. And also expect there to be some painful conviction at times. Because many times when God speaks, He either tells us, go, or He tells us, no, to some things that we want to do. And so embrace the conviction of God. Don't swell up in pride and say, well, he hurt my feelings this morning when he said that. I, I heard about a college professor or a college president in Oklahoma this week. His name is Dr. Everett Piper. He's the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He published a letter, an open letter, that reads like this. This past week, I actually had a student come forward after a university chapel service and complain because he felt victimized by a sermon on the topic of 1 Corinthians 13. Do you know what is in 1 Corinthians 13? That's the love chapter. He goes on and says, It appears that this young scholar felt offended because a sermon on love made him feel bad for not showing love. In his mind, the speaker was wrong for making him and his peers feel uncomfortable. I'm not making this up. Our culture has actually taught our kids to be self-absorbed to, to self and narcissistic. Anytime their feelings are hurt, they feel like victims. Well, I have a message for this young man and for all who care to listen. That feeling of discomfort that you hear, that you have after listening to a sermon is called a conscience. An altar call is supposed to make you feel bad. It is supposed to make you feel guilty. The goal of many a good sermon is to get you to confess your sins, not coddle you in your selfishness. The primary objective of the church and the Christian faith is your confession, not your self-actualization. So here's my advice. If you want the chaplain to tell you you're a victim rather than to tell you that you need virtue, this may not be the university you're looking for. If you want to complain about the sermon that makes you feel less than loving because you're not loving, this might be the wrong place. If you don't want to feel guilt in your soul when you are feeling guilty of sin, if you want to be enabled rather than be to to be confronted, there are many universities across the land that will give you exactly what you want. We teach you, as a school, to be selfless rather than self-centered. We are more interested in you practicing personal forgiveness than political revenge. We don't believe that you have to feel victimized every time you feel guilty, and we don't issue trigger, trigger warnings before altar calls. Our school is not a safe place, but rather a place to learn. To learn that life isn't about you. 
but others. And the bad feeling that you have while listening to a sermon is called guilt. That, the way to address, the, the way to address it is to repent of everything that's wrong with you rather than to blame others for everything that's wrong with them. This is a place where you will quickly learn that you need to grow up. This is not a daycare. This is a university. I appreciate that type of language because we need to grow up. There are some things that we need to hear from God. And so when you come to this place and in your relationship to God, if you are an active listener, that's the place you start your obedience to God. Here's the second lesson about obedience. Obedience is the path to fresh starts and second chances. Some of you right now are feeling really crummy about yourselves. Some of you are like, oh man, I, I don't love much either. I'm kind of feeling victimized too. I'm feeling guilty. Here's the good news of the gospel. For every person who feels guilty, for every person whose conscience is not clear, the gospel offers fresh starts and second chances. Look back at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, I said this last week, but if I was God, I think I could have found somebody else at this point. Over and over, God is exercising incredible patience, working with Jonah, taking him and convincing him that this message of grace is not just for the Ninevites, it's also for Jonah. And before Jonah could deliver the message to the Ninevites, Jonah had to learn the lesson of grace for himself. And so he got second chances. And do you understand that obedience is the only rational response to a God who has been so gracious, so patient, so tolerant of your sinful, willful disobedience. Is there anybody here that has perfectly obeyed God every time he has told you something to do? Anybody here? You can be dismissed. This service is not for you. This service is for disobedient people. This service is for imperfect Christians who want to get back on track with God. How many of you are grateful that God didn't give up on you the first time you disobeyed? Any stories behind those raised hands? Any second chances? There is second chance obedience available to you today, no matter how far you have run from God, no matter how far you have sunk in your sin, God is offering you an opportunity to get right back on track with Him. But listen, second chances should not be taken for granted. If you're sitting here saying, yeah, one of these days I'll get around to being obedient, because after all, God is a God of second chances, and I'm just really not feeling like obeying today. So maybe like in 2018, I might get around to obeying what God called me to do. He'll be patient, he'll be gracious, and he'll be tolerant, because after all, that's what the preacher said. Listen, grace should be received, but grace should never be abused. And so often, Christians 
get in the hyper grace ditch or we get in the hyper obedience ditch and we rarely get the balance right. There is a wonderful relationship throughout Scripture of grace and obedience going hand in hand. We must never abuse grace. Here's the principle. The same God that extends grace expects obedience. And the only rational response to a God who has shown so much grace is to obey Him and to listen to Him and get on track with Him. In the New Testament, the one who wrote the most about grace was the Apostle Paul. He was trying to convince these hard-headed, pharisaical, rule-oriented, law-keeping Pharisees that God is not going to ever be pleased with your rule-keeping. And so in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, Paul writes extensively on the superiority of grace. He exalts grace to such a high level and says it's so much better. It's so much superior than your self-centered, religious-oriented rule-keeping to try to please God. You'll never be able to get it. And so he goes on and on and on about grace. But it's almost as if he catches himself going into chapter 6. And he's like, wait a minute. I wonder if I'm making grace sound so good that these people don't think they have to obey God. That somehow they're going to use grace as a license just to do whatever they want to do. And so he catches himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and writes this in chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? You know what he's saying? I don't want to hear any of you saying that you can go on sinning abusing grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, after all, the more I sin, the more opportunity God has to pour grace. And God's such, Jesus loves to show grace. That's good. I love God because he loves to show grace because I also love sin. We've got this great love relationship. I love to sin. God loves to show grace. I love God so much. And if that's your understanding of grace, you don't understand grace. Some of you grew up in some very graceless environments. Did you grow up in a home that rarely showed grace? Every time you stepped out of line, every time you didn't meet the, how high the bar was, that you just got condemned, you got punished. Some of you grew up in faith systems like that or churches like that where you got pounded that you were to obey Every time, when you're told to do it, with the right heart attitude, and there was never any grace when you blew it. How many of you grew up in an environment like that? How many of you grew up in a faith system like that? And somehow you believed that if I'm going to be right with God, I have to do what God says. And somehow you thought that if your good works could outweigh your bad works, then God would somehow let you into heaven. Listen, that is the opposite of what the Bible has to say. We are saved by grace alone. But the grace that saved is not alone. It is coupled with obedience.
But we are never to abuse grace. Are we to sin that grace may, may abound? He answers his own question. It's almost as if he's shouting. By no means. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? And the great thing about grace, grace demands more from me than all the laws in the Bible ever did. But the great thing about grace is grace not only demands obedience, grace gives me the power to obey. Overwhelmed with the thought that God would rescue me in my sin and turn me around and give me an opportunity, a second chance to follow him, how can I not Listen and do everything according to the word of God. The third lesson on grace is this. Obedience is the overflow of love for God. We're going to chase this theme. We're going to leave Jonah here for a few minutes. Let's jump into the book of John in the New Testament. John chapter 14, verse 15, very simple principle. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's the implication if you don't keep the commandments? Failing to obey God is a failure to love God. If you've got an obedience problem, you have a passion problem. And any obedience that's not motivated by love is simply lifeless religion. But if you love me, the overflow will be that you keep his commandments. He goes on and says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Do you see the emphasis on love? Even as Jesus is calling people to obey this morning, he is calling you to love him. As a son loves a father and wants to dress like him and walk like him and hit a ball like him and talk like him. That's the love relationship that we have with our Father that spills over into obedience. And then he goes on and says this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Now I want you to notice the relationship here. Do you understand what he's saying? The more you love God and the more you obey God, the more you will know God. If God seems distant to you, even though you know all the rules, you've had Bible verses pounded into your head, you know what's expected of you, and yet God seems a million miles away, do you know what the problem is? It's not that you don't know His commands, it's that you don't know his heart. You don't have a heart relationship with Jesus. And you don't understand the love of God. But it says, if you love him and if you keep his commandments, look at what the byproduct is. He will come and make 
his home with you. You're going to feel at home in the presence of God. Not that there is a God, but he is my God. And we have love and relationship together. And so that's the kind of relationship that God wants from us. Obedience without love is legalism. Love without obedience is impossible. Do you understand that? And so before you say, I love God, is there something God's asked you to do that you have failed to do? Is there something that God has said, stop, and you continue to do? Ultimately, there's only two motivations for obedience. Fear or love. Isn't that the relationship you have with your employer? If you don't do what he says, you're going to get fired. You love your employer. Some of you love your employer. But most of you are like, no, I just need a paycheck, right? And I fear losing the paycheck, so I guess I'll do what he wants me to do. That's a fear relationship. God wants to have a love relationship with you that spills over and motivates your obedience. Here's the fourth lesson about obedience. Obedience is the foundation of the Christian life. Jesus At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, after teaching principle after principle, three full chapters of what God expects of a believer, he gets to the end of it all and says this, Everyone then who hears my words and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house upon a rock. Two verses later, And everyone who hears these words of mine Again, is there an echo in here? It's like each keeps saying the same thing, but then it changes. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. What's the only difference between the two men? They both heard what God wanted them to do. They both had the commandments. The only difference in the outcome of their life was whether or not they obeyed them. It wasn't a question if they had the right information. They had the right information. The measure of your godliness is not based upon how many preaching podcasts you download on your iPhone. The measure of your obedience is if you do Something in response to what God has said in his word. You know what these two verses do? They explain why some of your lives are in the chaos that they are in. Why why doesn't things ever go well for me? Why can't I keep a job? Why does every relationship end up uh, tragically messed up? Why am I always behind financially? Why can't I ever get ahead? And do you know what this verse explains? You are building your life either on foundational obedience to God or foundational self-will. And if your foundation is God and His Word, then you are a wise man. And it's going to go great for you. The verses go on in that story to say the wind comes, the flood rises, the rain falls on both men. One man's house stands, the other falls. 
And it says, great will be the destruction of it for the man who does not obey God. Fifth lesson, obedience is rewarded by God. I'm trying to give you some good news here this morning. Obedience is rewarded by God. Notice this, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, he lays down again two foundational principles. He says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Every time you obey God, do you know what you do? You invite the blessing of God. You know, so many times, especially at tragic events, we'll watch a group of people come together and we'll sing, God bless America. And we're somehow in that song expecting God to be impressed with our song, I guess. Listen, if we want God to bless us, then God expects us to obey Him. And every time you obey God, you invite His blessing. I don't even do this with my kids. If Leah thinks she's getting a candy bar for cleaning up her room, she is sadly mistaken. I'm just not that good of a father. If I did that, I would be broke. She would be fat. So I don't give her a candy bar every time she perfectly obeys. And yet God holds out riches and rewards to those of you that obey. That doesn't mean you're going to be rich. It doesn't mean that you're never going to have any problems. We're going to have problems. But it does mean that in the midst of difficulty, you have an understanding that God wants to bless you. And you can live with a clear conscience because you have. But notice, 15 verses later in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says this, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Well, I thought God loves you. He loves you so much. He wants to wake you up. He wants to get your attention so that you will get on track with Him. So many rewards for obedience. And God is trying to set you up to win here, folks. God created you. God knows what your life should look like. And yet when you stray from that, you lose every time. We say around here, choose to sin choose to suffer. Choice is yours. But it all comes down to whether or not you obey or disobey God. Here's the last thing. Obedience is the proof of genuine salvation. Now we're in the book of 1 John. And 1 John has a lot to say about people who claim to know God. Notice this verse. 1 John 2 verses 3 and 4. By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him. Get that hand in the right. Anybody know? How many of you know Jesus? Anybody love Jesus? Oh, I'll stick my hand in the air for that. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Get your hand down. There's no proof that what you're saying is true. He says, anyone who does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He goes on. In verse 6, no one who abides in him 
keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Every time people read that church, they want to jump to all the loopholes and try to explain away. Surely it couldn't mean that. But don't miss the truth. The proof of genuine salvation is how much you sin and how much you obey God. Now listen, no one perfectly obeys God. If you think you are a person who has stopped sinning, you just let me have a five-minute conversation with your spouse. I'll bet we can find some evidence that's not true. It's not about perfection. It's about sanctification. It's not that I sin never. It's that I sin less and less and less. It's not perfect obedience, but it's increasing obedience that demonstrates God is actively working in my life. When his word comes, I hear his voice. I turn from sin. I do what God wants me to do. And we have so emphasized grace in the church, which grace needs to be emphasized, but not at the cost of giving you a license to do whatever you want to do. Are you obedient to God? If you cannot point to increasing obedience in your life, you should question whether or not you know Him at all. If year after year you go on sinning and sinning, as a matter of fact, you're good at it, and you're actually becoming better at sinning, that's an indication you don't know God. Last verse. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Now listen, very careful. We don't obey God to be accepted by God. That is religion. It's false religion. It can't save you. Here's the gospel. Because God has accepted me. I will obey him. That's the gospel. That's grace. And if that concept has never clicked for you, today you need to be saved. The gospel is this. Because all of us are disobedient, God sent his son one day to be born in a manger. And for 33 years, do you know what Jesus Christ did? He did what he was told to do, when he was told to do it, with the right heart attitude every time. And do you know what the gospel is? The gospel is this. God has sent Jesus as a substitute obedience for those who have disobeyed. And if you will exchange your disobedience for his obedience, then God will treat you as if you have perfectly obeyed him every time at the judgment. What a gracious offer. It's the story of the gospel. It's the story of Jonah. It's the story of Christmas. Your obedience can't save you. But those who have been saved will joyfully obey God. Now, we're going to end the service a little different today. 
We're not going to sing. We're not going to stand. I'm going to give you a few minutes to actively listen to God. Did you get a bulletin this morning? Pull out that bulletin. There was an extra sheet in there this morning. I want you to take a look at it. And um, take those out. There's three different sections on here. I just want you to notice what it says. I'm going to give you time to do this. We're not going to have a formal dismissal to the service. We're just going to turn this into kind of a a time to seek the Lord. And uh, let's reserve our conversations for out in the foyer. I know some of you need to go get your kids. But listen, I want you to take whatever time you need today to listen to God and obey Him in some very practical areas. What does God want me to do? Well, here's a few suggestions. Notice it says, Have I placed limits on what I will do in obedience to God? Am I unwilling to sacrifice time in order to serve others? Give sacrificially of my resources to further His kingdom and build His church? Set aside time on a daily basis to meet with Him in prayer and Bible study? And it goes on. The second section says, Am I continuing to do something God wants me to stop third section, is there anything I know God wants me to do that I have not done? I want you to take time right now and work through these questions. I'm going to give you time to do it. And there's not going to be any formal dismissal. Whenever God's finished with you, feel free to be dismissed. Let's keep it quiet in here and let's focus on what God is saying. If you're new, Don't forget, after this service, we'll meet you in our connections room just right down the hallway. We'd love to meet you, our pastors and our staff. If you are new to Harvest, we want to get to know who you are. But let's take some time to walk through this. We'll see you next week. You are loved.